Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. It's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is March 4th, 2013, and this is episode 1081 of the Survival Podcast. And even though it's Monday, Monday, uh, we're going to do what we usually do on Friday, Friday, Friday. And uh, I can't give you the full inflection and tone of the voice today, guys. Uh, I'm going to be, have to be a little bit reserved as the voice is still on the mend from whatever this crud is that I had. Uh, they gave me a pretty bad case of laryngitis. I seem to do this about once a year, and I think this year I'm going to blame uh, the free staters and the airplane rides to get there. I'm calling it the New York Airport Flu because I got laid over in LaGuardia and uh, immediately the next day had this crud. So I'm blaming New York for this because, well, if you're going to blame somebody, New York's as good as any place to blame, especially New York City. Anyway... Uh, on that note, we're going to be doing listener calls today. So these are your calls to 866-65-THINK. Again, 866-65-THINK. I have about 12 calls keyed up today, and I'll be giving you my responses to them. If you'd like to be on a show like this, please call from a private uh, private area. Now, you can do that if you want to, but from a quiet area. And uh, please make sure if you're on a cell phone, you got at least a couple bars. Please ask your question or make your point as quickly and succinctly as possible and then give details following that. It will make it a lot more likely that when I play your call to uh, screen it for the air that I'll actually listen to all of it and you might actually get on the air if you do that. Uh, I probably get about 30 to 40% of calls on the air. I Maybe that's falling down with higher call volumes to 25, uh, but it's pretty good odds if you make a few calls to get at least some of them on the air if you follow those instructions. Please don't call from the back of a motorcycle or while running a chainsaw or a weed eater, and that will also improve your odds of getting on the air. I know that's not what you're really doing, but my point is find a quiet place to do this. Definitely don't call from a vehicle with the windows down. I know some of you have done that. It's a very distinctive sound and will not get on the air no matter how good your question is if you do that. Anyway, before I get to your calls today, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is BackyardFoodProduction.com. I spent a lot of time on the show talking about gardening, homesteading, permaculture, all that stuff. And it's because, well, you know, I believe in following certain rules. Now, not the rules that maybe government says we have to follow, but the rules like that like keep you alive. So rule number one of survival is don't die, right? Because if you die, you fail to survive. Very clear, very cut and dry. What does that have to do with food? You don't eat long enough, you die, you fail the first rule. So we've got to feed ourselves. If we're going to do that, we can only do so much with storage of food. We can only do so much with barter. We need a food production mechanism in our survival plans. And if you want to know how to turn your backyard into a food production machine, get the DVD, Growing Your Groceries, from BackyardFoodProduction.com. Check them out today, BackyardFoodProduction.com. Next up today, survival gear bags. Hey, you got all this great gear, right? you got to do something with it so that it's accessible so you can carry it with you. You need a go bag. You need a, a, a bug-out bag. You know, you need a larger vehicle kit, 
Get over to Survival Gear Bags, and you'll find the bags you need to do just that. Hey, but you need some more gear, too. Hey, they've got the gear to go with the bags. Check them out. Kelly John Doe's a great guy. He's been part of our community for over three years. Uh, I'd say maybe over four years. He's been around almost since the beginning. In fact, Survival Gear Bags was actually founded uh, after being inspired to go into the space by uh, the Survival Podcast, because Kelly was already in the product fulfillment uh, business. So he's a community member. He's going to take care of you. He also offers a discount to member support brigade members so before you order from survival gear bags make sure you uh, log into the MSB and get your discount I've had a lot of questions lately how do I get my discounts once you join the member support brigade log in click on benefits and all the discount programs are listed use the codes during checkout or make the phone call that you need to with a few vendors and you get the discount there's no way for a vendor to know that you're a member unless you do that just wanted to point that out also want to remind you guys about 13skills.com. That's really been an awesome and growing site. We are working on version 1.1 of the site with a whole bunch of new features. Get involved today if you haven't already, 13skills.com. Check out TSP Mint and TSP Gear for cool gear and great prices on silver. Check out the new Sil uh, Second Amendment coins at tspmint.com. Uh, again, for MSB members, you're talking about custom-made silver rounds, um, for $1.99 a coin over spot. That's an incredible deal. Uh, check us out today, tspmint.com, for your silver investing needs. Last but not least, I said it several times, Member Support Brigade. What's that? Well, that's how you support the show. Support the show at a whopping 18.3 cents an episode. You get all these great discounts. You get over $150 worth of free ebooks the day that you sign up. I'm constantly shaking down people to get you more discounts. The membership pays for itself. And again, it comes out to about 18.3 cents an episode to support the work we're doing here at the Survival Podcast. It's how we pay all the bills. It's how we keep the show running. It's how we keep the show growing. Uh, if you are military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty or prior service, or a first responder like a paramedic, and you email me before, not after, before you join with service discount in the subject line and tell me who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did, uh, we will go ahead and get a discount code over to you before you join. You'll use it during sign-up, and it'll save you even more money on an already great deal. That is to thank you for your service uh, to our country, both at home or abroad, depending on the service that you've done. Again, Peace Corps volunteers do qualify for this because um, having worked during my time in the military with some Peace Corps volunteers, Uh, I was in a place where we were in a little bit of danger. Frankly, they had less resources and had more uh, risk to their security than we did, and they were doing some very noble work right alongside of what we were doing. I see the value in Peace Corps. Uh, I know that some folks don't think that maybe that's the uh, the bastion of uh, preparedness and survivalism, but uh, let me tell you, most people that have served in the Third World and the Peace Corps have a better understanding of the need for, for preparedness than those who have not. Anyway, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. I want to start out not with a call, but an article that I published over the weekend. So last week I threw out a little bit of a teaser where I said that... Um, You know, it's pretty much dead at the federal level. There's not any change coming at the federal level. And I know that some of us have particular issues that are very important to us. The Second Amendment, for instance. Rest assured, if I'm voting in an election at the federal level, so I, let's say a, a congressman or a senator for the state of Texas, and I think that that race is competitive at all, that my vote might have any Uh, influence whatsoever on the election, and generally I don't think it does. There's these districts that 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 I would vote in are pretty well decided. They're going to be Republican. Okay, that's, that's just they are. But if there was a challenger, and I don't care if the challenger 
was Republican or Democrat, and one of the members in the election was decidedly for, and one of the members in the election was decidedly opposed to Second Amendment issues, I don't care what the initial is, I'm going to vote for the person that supports the Second Amendment, and by and large, that's going to be a Republican. So I know there's certain issues that we have that you can at least hold the line with the Senate and the House, okay? I acknowledge that. That's not my point, though, when I tell you getting real change is dead. What would be real change? What would be real change? How about balancing our frickin' budget, okay? How about not destroying what's left of Social Security? How about not ignoring the American people? How about, how about not militarizing our police force? How about at least, at least reining in the Federal Reserve and getting a general audit of it so that we could see what the hell is going on? How about not using radiation to, uh, irradiate people every time they get on an airplane? How about not advancing that toward the point where you're going to end up with those machines in train stations? How about not advancing that to where you are probably going to end up at some point with security like this at America, at least America's largest malls? How about not advancing down that road? How about not putting armored vehicles in the hands of local police departments in small towns all over America? How about not all of this shit? Okay. How about not heading the United States of America into financial oblivion uh, through a complete reckless building of the debt? I mean, how about not all the, so how about changing the stuff that the Tea Party, frankly, was supposed to stand for? Cutting, cutting spending and cutting taxes, right? And cutting spending more aggressively than cutting taxes. How about not whenever we're actually going to cut 2% of the total budget in a so-called sequester, having it act like the whole world's going to go over a cliff, right? How about not doing any of that shit? How about actually fixing the problems that we've created for ourselves? That's what I'm saying. That's not going to happen. So, yes, you can hold the line on a few issues by making sure there's enough of either party in office to the, the places that they've actually staked out and said, we won't, we won't let this go. And sooner or later, on either side, you'll get sold out. Sooner or later, Republicans will sell you out on fiscal issues. They will sell you out on liberty issues. And sooner or later, Democrats will sell you out. You'll get sold out. And I've said that at the federal level, it doesn't matter. So yes, I understand there's a remnant, there's a remnant there that at times makes voting for the D or the R, or more accurately, the person that stands for your issue worth doing in a congressional election where your vote might matter, where it's a close race. By and large, it's not a close race. But let me tell you why they'll never be changed. And again, if you've read the article, you already know this. But this is something most Americans don't know. This is something that most people that run for the Congress or the Senate don't know if they're running for the first time. They have no idea what they're walking into. So let's say that you are Joe. Joe Freedom. And Joe Freedom runs on a platform for the United States Congress. He's running for to become a senator. And Joe Freedom wins as Senator from the great state of XYZ. doesn't matter what state. Joe runs as a blank. I won't tell you whether he's a Democrat or a Republican because it doesn't matter. And Joe says, I will never vote for a tax increase. I will push for spending cuts. I will never violate your rights as far as the Second Amendment of the Constitution goes. I will be independent. I will take care of my constituents. And I will never break my word to you. And I will not be beholden to special interest groups. Let's say that Joe ran as a renegade. He was a renegade candidate. He was a renegade candidate for either party. The, the main party didn't want him, the DNC or the RNC. Neither one wanted him, right? They didn't really want him. And they wanted their boy in. And we've seen this happen a lot, right? You see these renegades get in. And the renegade 
actually wins the primary. And then let's say the party, the DNC or the RNC, basically says, you know what? You're on your own. And they don't support, they don't support Joe Freedom. And Joe Freedom runs and still wins. Okay? I bet you could think of some elections that got national attention just like this. So Joe says, aha, see, the people have spoken. And I am now going to the Senate and I will make a difference. And Joe shows up for his freshman senator's briefing. And a senior member of the party walks over to Joe and says, welcome to the Senate. And Joe says, thanks for having me here. Because Joe's being classy, even though he knows this ass clown threw him under the bus. And the guy hands Joe a piece of paper. That piece of paper is a bill. It's for Joe's party dues. He owes to the Democratic National Committee or the Republican National Committee, either or, uh, depending on which party Joe ran for, a bill, a debt. Generally, that debt will be about $100,000 for party dues. And Joe Freedom says, what the hell is this? You guys didn't do anything for me. And they said, this is your party dues. You're still a Republican or you're still a Democrat, Joe. And this is the party dues. And he says, do I have to pay this? And they say, no. In fact, it's completely voluntary. And frankly, you don't have to pay it. This is the debt you owe to the party um, for party dues, but you don't have to pay it. But even if you want to pay it, but you don't want to pay it out of your own pocket or you don't want to pay it from your own war chest, Joe, all you have to do is do some fundraising for the, you know, the, the party. And, and once the, the fundraising is accomplished, your dues are paid for the year. And Joe says, well, screw you. I'm not doing this. I specifically campaigned that I won't do this. And they say, well, that's fine. You don't have to. You don't have to at all. But, um, you know, this is uh, actually how you get your first uh, chair or actually post a, a membership on, let's say, a minor committee or two. You know, that's how you're going to get into this committee and that committee, and you can propose amendments, and you can you know, have some, some you know, input on a steering committee or something like that. And, by the way, if you'd like to have a, a more senior position on the committee, a chair or a vice chair, or get into a committee that's a little bit more important, a little bit higher up, you're going to have to do more fundraising. And if you don't do this, you don't get on any of the committees, committees at all. You don't get to have any input at all. You won't be introducing legislation. You won't be introducing amendments. You can pretty much show up on voting day, and you'll get your little time to debate uh, when the whole floor is open and everybody gets their two minutes or whatever before we vote on something. And sometimes it's 30 seconds, uh, depending on what we're putting through. And sometimes with a majority vote, we don't even do it. We just go through because we already know it's going to pass. And you can vote yes or no, and that's it. Those are your two choices. You either play ball, you either caucus with us, And you, you take part in this, this, this society where we sell through fundraising your seats on the committees and the chairs of the committees, or you don't, and you don't get to do jack diddly shit except vote yes or no. Now, Joe's made a bunch of promises that he will get certain things done, that he will introduce such legislation. He's now being told you won't be introducing... I mean, anybody can introduce something, but if it doesn't get into a committee or at least through a committee, it, it's, it's pointless. It doesn't accomplish anything. So he's being basically told, look, you're either going to play ball with this or you're not going to do jack shit at all. And again, it doesn't matter if he's a Republican. doesn't matter if he's a Democrat. He doesn't. So Joe says, you know what? Okay, assholes. All right, I'm going to stay independent, but um, I, I got to I got to work with this. So how do I raise funds for the, the committee? It's only hundred grand, and they say, well, here's a list of names and people you can call uh, that are friendly to the Republican cause, and you can call them as new, you know, new Senator Joe Freedom uh, from the great state of blank, 
and you can tell them about all the wonderful things. Here's the script of what the party's working on this year and how we need their support. And there's a, a little place over there, a little telemarketing place over there. You just take this and go over there and start making some phone calls. And Joe then becomes beholden to the people on the list before his own voters. And he could try to be independent. He could try to be a renegade. And about the only way around this is if Joe has enough of his own backers or enough personal wealth that he can take out of his own pocket and make a contribution to his own party to buy himself a position as a chairman or a committee member on the committees that he wants to. And some of the higher level chairmanships and all go for over a million dollars. This is your Senate. This is your House. This is how it works, and there is no way around the system. There's no way around this. You don't do it any other way. And when people say, so people have been commenting about the article that I posted about this, and you can learn the entire process at a website called definingthemachine.com. I met this gentleman in New Hampshire that's kind of uh, opened my eyes to exactly how this works. I already knew that it basically worked this way, but now like, I completely understand the mechanics. I understand the fact that a lot of these guys that campaign and promise to be independent, they have, they're, they're hit like a deer in the headlights. When they get there the first day with this crap. But people are asking, so voting for somebody like Rand Paul doesn't make a difference? A little bit. Um, Rand can bring awareness to things. Rand can get himself onto committees because he has so much money behind him because of the Ron Paul machine that he can go ahead and circumvent this fundraising and basically buy his committee, but he's buying his committee seats. Do you think, do you think Ron Paul became the chairman? of the finance committee because he was just there a long time? Or do you think he was able to use his war chest to play the game and buy a seat? So only people with enough financial backing okay, to purchase their way in and really hold the line have any potential, but they are so few that generally all they do is bring awareness. What I, mean, I love Ron Paul. I do. I think that Ron Paul is proof that there is some integrity in government. Um, but tell me what Ron Paul got done in over 20 years in the Congress. What he actually introduced, supported, sponsored, and got passed that made a big difference in society. He tried to do a lot of things. He brought incredible awareness. He's probably the best thing that's happened to the liberty movement, but he's brought awareness. Rand, his son, has brought incredible awareness to the problems with the Federal Reserve, as his father did, and with airport security issues, with TSA overreaching. But yet, he's not actually capable of getting anything passed. Because the rest are being held in this system of, of basically political, uh, political financial prison, is the way that this system works. And the longer a congressman or a senator is at play in this system, the more entangled and entwisted and entrenched they become. Now, what's the solution? The solution would be for everybody running for the Congress uh, to know the, how the system works and to take an oath before they're elected that they will not participate in it. But you got to get 30 people, 25, 30 people in the Senate um, that, that are doing that. Um, and it's got to come from both parties. It's got to come from Republicans and Democrats for it to work. Because if it doesn't, the Republicans will say, look guys, you can't be off on your own. These Democrats are going to get, right? Okay? Right? And they're going to, and they will smear their own people in the next election and slaughter them. And the Democrats can play the same goal. Look, these Republicans, they're going to, so you got to have like this, this coalition of non-participants in this crap 
to put enough strength. So you're looking at probably a quarter of the Senate, and you probably need a quarter of the House. So you need about 110 uh, members of the House taking this pledge. And that's that's the solution at defining the machine, is to ask people running for office to take this pledge. But the people that are already in office aren't going to take this pledge. Right? They're already in the system. They already have their chairmanship or their, their committee. They're already working to advance within the seniority of that committee. It's all for sale. And this is why we have to turn to the state level. We have to start working with the Ninth and Tenth Amendments. We have to start pushing resolutions and nullifications at the state level. We have to start bringing more and more liberty-minded people to the liberty-minded states and form a coalition of the states. And we have to stand up to the federal government and demand change at the state level. And that's even weak. That's, but that's the best we can do right now. The, 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 the reality is these idiots, and they are all idiots that are running this machine, know, they absolutely know that the end here is financial destruction of the country. And they don't care as long as they get to promote their agenda using it to the fullest until it happens. And they think they can make it go on longer than they can. They know the result. All of them know it can't go on forever. But they all think it can go on longer than it can. They all think it can go on long enough that they can get what they want done using every little crisis on the way there. Don't think only Democrats don't let a good crisis go to waste. Republicans don't either. They just have different goals and agendas. And while you may align with some of the things Republicans want to do and some of the things that Democrats want to do, in the end, the places they agree The places where there is bipartisan support are the places where the American people get the greatest screw job and our trajectory toward the financial abyss, the financial insolvency of the United States of America is at its greatest angle toward the cliff and its greatest velocity. So there you go. Uh, for more information, check out definingthemachine.com and uh, read my article about that. Let's go ahead and take the first call today. Hey, Jack, it's Matthew from uh, Tucson, Warrior Hunter on the forums. Had a question about the impending uh, assault weapons ban uh, legislation. Most of my questions, and my question is when you think uh, things will start reappearing on store shelves uh, and be able to be purchased at normal pricing. I wasn't around for the last ban, uh, or not into guns then, so I don't have any experience with this. And uh, just wondered if we, if we're going to have to wait until the bill is quote unquote, you know, defeated or, or doesn't go anywhere, or if maybe just after a certain amount of time things will start showing back up. So any insight you have on that or thoughts, I would appreciate them. Thank you for the show, and keep doing what you're doing. The first thing I want to point out is we look at the shortage in ammunition, magazines, and weapons themselves at this current time is that it's a completely irrational response by us, the buying public, that's caused it. I'm not saying that the government doesn't have a role in it. They most certainly do, but I want to point some things out. I was at a Walmart this weekend to pick some stuff up, and I went to the sporting goods section just to look at the ammo case. Items that were sold out, 17 uh, rimfire, uh, both the H2 and the, uh, the, the, rim, the Magnum version, the 17 rimfire. 22, 22 long rifle ammo sold out. All 308 sold out. 9mm, 40 Smith & Wesson. Okay, those ones we can you know link into some other things. 38 Special sold out. Um, there was some 270, some 306, some off calibers, but very little of anything. Okay. Now, 
Right now, is any ammunition being proposed to be banned, especially at the federal level? And, and the answer is no, it's not. Okay. Um, if I, you want to buy, uh, right now, they're, they're, they're proposing federal legislation to ban magazines of greater than 10-round capacity. So you would think that, well, the one thing you could do is go out and buy 10-round magazines for your AR. But they're sold out on almost every... So my point here is that many things that are under no direct threat by pending legislation are in short supply. And people are buying it with a frenzy. And the biggest lesson we need here is it not to buy it, is it not to participate in uh, the need to stock up uh, when there is a, a possible danger of, of things going away. It's This is what happens when that happens in any commodity. What if this was food? What if this was gasoline and oil products? What if it was natural gas? What if it was anything that you've come to depend on? What if this was rubber? What if this was plastic? What if this was any component of our modern economy other than firearms? And far more people are participating. There's about 55 million gun owners in America. Let's say 10 million of them are going, eh, this is not that big a deal, and they're not really worried about it. Let's say another 5 million of the 55 are, you know, people that have like one gun and they're not, you know, they just, they just wanted a gun, they bought it, they have it, they got a couple of boxes of ammo, and they, so, you know, you're looking at maybe 40, 35, 40 million people. What if it was 300 million people participating in a buying glut? So that's, that's just the first thing I want to put out there. Uh, I've talked about it a little bit before, but I want you, when it comes to your preparing and you're stocking up on things, medical supplies, food, water, water filtration, things like that, whenever there's one of these little events, like how hard it was to come up with water filtration, potassium iodide, and things like that after the Fukushima event. Now, I told you don't participate in the panic buying there, but it, it, it plays out over and over again. Why do you think food would be any different? So there's the, the first lesson. Now, how long will this last? I don't know. I would say that the panic around the Obama election began about six months before the election, heated up in the last 60 days before the election, when people were pretty sure he was going to win, um, and then it lasted almost a full year before it was at least relatively easy to buy, you know, primers for your reloading again, uh, to get high-capacity magazines, and the prices on things like ARs and AKs came down to more reasonable levels. And it wasn't as bad as it is right now. It was not as bad as it is right now. There was a belief that Obama would push for firearms legislation. Nobody knew how. Nobody really thought it had a huge, but there was this off chance that spurred up a little bit of buying, a little bit of buying, spurred up a little bit of shortage, a little bit of shortage, encouraged more, and that's how it, that's the cascade effect. Okay? You go to buy something that you always expected to be there, it costs more, or there's not any available, you gotta wait a week to get it, you think, oh shit, you panic, emotion takes over, and now you buy two, and you wait your week. And the next person has to wait two weeks, so they buy three. And then the price goes up, and then people start chasing the price. This is the dynamic at play. What has happened this time that's different than the past is one, the belief that they're going to get something, we don't know what, but something done is much stronger. Two, individual states are taking it upon themselves to be even more draconian, that's creating an even bigger fear that, oh, my state might do it too. So people in Texas and Florida aren't really worried, but people in states that are kind of, you know, uh, in the middle, so to speak, are worried. 
and they're buying more. And the tragedy that they're using as an excuse for this is so horrific, people believe there's a greater chance of success. So the entire dynamic is played out even worse. Now, here's the compounding effect. Magpul, for instance, one of the premier manufacturers of magazines, had a back order, I don't know where it is now, but just a few weeks ago, had a back order of 1.5 million pieces. So we have two things that need to play out. One, the overall fear factor driving the purchasing, that this could be our last chance, has to wane. Could that be basically the bill being you know, defeated? Um, it, it's already happened. I mean, Harry Reid said that Feinstein bill was DOA. You'll never even see the floor in the Senate. It doesn't have a prayer in hell. Okay? So you have that. And, and that's pretty much, but people don't accept that yet. They're, they're still they're going to do something. They're going to do something. And I'm not saying they're not trying. Right? I'm just saying that's the attitude. But then there's this huge backlog. There's a backlog of everything. So even when the, the demand levels, there's a bubble of backlog that has to filter through. And that could last more than a year from right now. You could be looking at this time next year before you really see things level off. There'll be a, 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 a there'll be a, like a reintroduction phase. The first things that will start showing up again will be 22s and, you know, Ruger 1022 magazines will become easy to get again and all. It'll, and then it'll start cascading its way up toward the things that there's a greater justification for fear that they would take away. But then, let me bounce this off you. The economy will either be doing really good or really crappy in the midterm elections. Either way benefits the Democrats. I know you don't think it does, but either way does. If it's crappy, the Democrats are going to blame the Republicans for the sequester. And if it's good, they're going to say, look, see, our way works. And even if the Republicans are capable of holding the House, and they, they probably will, they'll hold the House in the midterms, um, <laughs> The fear factor around the next election and all the crap and the fundraising by the NRA and they're more hell-bent than ever to take your guns could restart the cycle almost as soon as it stops. We have a real problem here. And the only thing that we're going to get through it with is for the manufacturers to pull up their belt buckles and go into, and nobody take this the wrong way, wartime manufacturing capacity. They're going to have to up their capacity to meet the demand. That, that's the only way to make this work. That's the only way to, 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 to level things out. And you have to ask, if they're selling everything they produce at a greater premium than ever before, is it in their business best interest to do so? And the answer is yes, but will they see it? I think some will and some won't. So, I mean, the solution to this problem is Winchester, it's Remington, it's Colt, it's, it's et cetera. And another solution would be to do what, you know, Magpul's doing now. Magpul has joined the list of people not selling to law enforcement officers in the banned states. But here's a little thing Magpul's doing that I, I really like. Uh, Magpul has said, uh, over the weekend, we are suspending all sales to law enforcement officers in banned states, but we really don't want to. We don't think that the individual officers should be punished for what their state's doing. So they're putting together a program where an officer from New York that can purchase uh, Magpul uh, product uh, with the exemption that law enforcement gets if they swear to basically be an oath keeper and to not enforce unconstitutional laws. That's interesting. 
And a lot of these manufacturers, if they stop selling to the places that are oppressing our rights, might have more inventory to sell to the people that uh, actually are trying to defend our rights. So it's just a thought. But that's what I see. I see almost a year here in the best-case scenario before things really go back to normal. I see about six months before things start to really kind of get in that direction where things become affordable and available again. Uh, let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Jake in Pittsburgh. I'm driving across the great state of Pennsylvania right now to do some business over in Philadelphia. And as I'm passing through, I'm going through your old stomping grounds of Pottstown, Pennsylvania. And I'm just curious, how is it that you ended up being a Steelers fan instead of a Philadelphia Eagles fan? It seems like the Eagles are a lot closer to Pottstown than the Steelers. Was it just a family thing? I think you played football in high school, and I, I don't know what you got turned on to, what teams were hot, and what you really you know, uh, got excited about or what your local TV coverage was here in Pottstown, but I have to assume that it was almost always the Philadelphia Eagles. Inquiring minds want to know, Jack, why did you end up a Steelers fan instead of an Eagles fan? Okay, love what you do. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, actually, I'm I'm a fan of both teams in reality, but I am a much bigger Steelers fan than than an Eagles fan. And for those that are wondering what this has to do with preparedness, uh, the answer is absolutely nothing. But we talk talk about a lot of deep crap around here at times, and I think it's fun to have a lighthearted question. Uh, I've actually been amazed at how much people want to know about kind of who I am personally and and little quirks like this. So I figured I'd entertain it. Here's the reality, though: I am not from Pottstown. I am from Pottsville. And while Pottsville is in eastern Pennsylvania, it's as divorced from Philadelphia as anything in uh, Pennsylvania could possibly be. Uh, Pottsville is about 54 miles north of Pottstown. Uh, Pottstown is close enough to Philadelphia almost to be a, a Philly suburb. Uh, Pottsville is a coal mining town. Uh, from the day and age and the height of the original coal mining boom in the 1800s and early 1900s of, uh, of Pennsylvania's history. Uh, things like the Molly Maguires, if you want to look that up for an interesting little piece about uh, rebellious American history and uh, some pretty nefarious characters and things like that. So it's not, I mean, let me put it to you this way. When I used to get mocked by the people that I worked with in New Jersey, New York, and Boston, uh, places like that, uh, they used to say something that in, in a way had some truth to it, that Pennsylvania was Pittsburgh and Philadelphia and everything in the middle might as well be Kentucky. And uh, given there's a Kentucky long rifle and a Pennsylvania long rifle and a whole shitload of the people that founded Kentucky were people that got pissed off after the Whiskey Rebellion and left rural Pennsylvania and went to Kentucky where there wasn't really any law enforcement yet, there's some truth to it. And Pennsylvania, when you get away from Philly and Pittsburgh, is its own world. It's a totally – and I think a lot of states are this way. As for the Steelers, I don't know. There was just always something about the attitude of we'll do whatever it takes to win. There was something about the – You know, the glory days of the 70s and Terry Bradshaw, the Steel Curtain, but, but the toughness. That's what it was for me. And I, you know, I grew up where we used to play hockey as kids and we actually hit each other. 
And it was okay. And everybody was okay after it was over. That if you got a little blood on you from yourself or from your buddy while you played hockey, eh, no big deal. Right? I grew up where we used to play scurry hockey, which is like hockey without ice, in gym class in high school. And we had a ring and a stick. Right? So the puck was a big, thick, heavy ring, and you had a stick. And we used to slam each other into to brick walls. And if a fight broke, I mean, I'm going to tell you, this is how different schools are today. If two guys really were going to get into it and have a fight in, in that game or any other game we played gym, we had um, we didn't have co-ed gym except for a few periods of time. We'd play things like volleyball and all. We'd have maybe like a couple weeks a year where we had co-ed gym. We had boys' gym and girls' gym. And we played different sports because the boys played these rough sports. And if two guys were going to throw down, you know what the coaches did? Absolutely nothing. They let the two guys go at it, throw a couple punches, throw a couple blows, wrestle, whatever it was. And then when one person clearly had the advantage before it got really bad, really dangerous, you pulled it apart and, he, and he'd say, okay, it's over now, right? You got it out of your system now, right? You want to go back to the game or you want to go to the dean's office? And both, both guys would go, it's over. And you'd shake hands and you'd go back to it and no one had to meet in the playground after school after that. That was it. There was this toughness in the place that I grew up, but there was a toughness with a respect and nobody really wanted to go out and really hurt anybody, but if you had to solve it, you had to solve it and it was done. And that's just how the Steelers played football for me. And it's how I've lived my life. I mean, that's how I was in business. It's a tough but fair thing. Right? I'm not saying the Steelers never did anything dirty because they, you know, if you look at guys like Jack Ham and stuff, I mean, you, I mean, there's some places where there's some footage of him and there's like a guy down and he doesn't think anybody's looking. He just gives them a kick in the chest and all. And, but that crap happens and who knows what precipitated that, right? But it was this tough, we'll run over you, we'll stomp you, we'll stop you, we'll beat you, and we'll use our brains. At the same time, we have this, like the Steelers were this team with, you know, you can talk about Terry Bradshaw being a, a hick from Louisiana, but the guy was wicked smart. And they had this intelligence and this toughness that I watched as a kid in the 70s into the early 80s, and I just stayed a fan for the rest of my life. So, And, and it is kind of a metaphor for how I try to live my life, where there's just a certain point where you, you tolerate shit for so long, And then you fight. And, and that's, to me, that's what the Steelers were. I get people asking me, I want to talk about this a little bit different, though. Why do you even care about football? Isn't it just a game? Aren't there more important things? And the answer is yes. There's absolutely more important things. But I don't live my life completely jacked in and plugged into media and all the bad news. I live my life with the awareness of that and setting up my life to be, res life to be resilient about, against it, but also enjoy myself. And I also look at football as one of the few places left where things do have some level of a purity. There's not, there's never any cheating. There's never any point shaving. There's never any incompetent referees or anything like that. But in the end, football is pretty much a battle between men who are the best in the world at what they do. They play under a set of rules. And in the end, the winner wins and the loser loses. And at the end of the day, You get another chance next year, just like life. You can be beaten, you can lose, you can get your ass kicked, but if you stay true to who and what you are and you strive to be the best at what you are, you always have a chance to come back and change that destiny. And to me, there's, there's, there's not a sport out there, personally, that I feel that more about than football. Um, 
You know, they play less games because if football players try to play as many games as basketball players or baseball players or even hockey players played, um, they would have careers that probably lasted, you know, two seasons and it would be over because it's that tough. It's that hard. And I just have a respect for anything that's that tough and that hard. And when it came to, you know, my years of growing up, when it came to tough and hard, it was the Steelers. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. I was just curious, not having done much of a gardening myself, is it safe to eat the greens that come off the top of the actual plant that you're trying to uh, grow? Um, I was watching your planting a bag garden for quick temporary production video, and uh, you're talking about the zucchinis you're growing, and the green on it looks amazing. And I just happen to think, what about there's so many different plants that we put in, be it a root or a vegetable or whatnot, that has a green component where it absorbs the sun, where it gets the good water to uh, grow it and everything. And is there, can we eat all of the greens of any different plant that we might plant, even though that's not the fruit of uh, the, the actual vegetable or uh, whatever we're growing? Or are there some that we really need to avoid because the only reason it's there is for that solar exposure or um, the water component and they might have toxins or something that we shouldn't eat. I, I just thought it was fascinating and not having uh, been a gardener or knowing much about it, uh, you know, because who would think to eat a dandelion flower or the dandelion leaves or the roots even? Uh, and I know there is a lot of uh, good things that can come out of every single one of those. Uh, so uh, I just thought maybe that might be fascinating for uh, completely newbie uh, gardeners uh, to hear. Thank you so much, Jack. Have a great one. Appreciate what you do. Bye. The answer is it depends. I would put greens in the garden into one of four categories. One, the simple one, plants that are grown for their greens, right? So when we look at something like lettuce and spinach, obviously the green is, is edible because that's what we've grown it for. Then I would say there's another category of plants that are dual purpose. The green part of the plant is usable, as is some other component. A lot of these are uh, things grown for, for the purpose of their roots, such as beets, Uh, beets are a great root crop, and yet the beet greens are, are, are quite usable as well, either as baby greens in a salad or larger greens cooked up. And there's, there's some different plants like that. Sweet potatoes uh, are a great example. You can cut leaves off your sweet potato vines all year and eat them. They're okay raw. They, 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 actually, I kind of like them chopped up in a salad with other things. Uh, but they're really great stir-fried with stir-fried other vegetables and meats. So uh, those are two examples of where you've got a root yield and, and, and a leaf yield. Then there's some other plants that maybe fit into some other category. They have a fruit and a leaf, leaf yield as well. Uh, and, and those exist. And then there are Uh, plants that would fall into the category of you could eat it, but you're not going to want to. Um, as far as I know, and, and I feel safe saying this one because I don't think anybody's going to want to eat the leaf of a uh, of a you know a zucchini squash plant. It just doesn't seem very appetizing. There's nothing toxic about that leaf. It's just not appetizing. You wouldn't want it. That would be your third category. And then your fourth category would be things that if you eat the leaves, it can be very toxic to you, or at least mildly toxic, and you shouldn't. Uh, and most of these would be things that you probably aren't going to really want to eat anyway. Uh, potatoes, tomatoes, and peppers are members of the nightshade family. And for a long time, people thought you had to cook tomatoes specifically because of this. And uh, it was because there's toxicity in nightshade. Solanine is one of the toxic compounds there. And um, 
You really shouldn't eat the greens of tomatoes or potatoes or peppers. I don't think you'd find them very appetizing anyway, but those would all be on the absolutely do not eat list. And just because it's a root yield doesn't mean the greens are good for you. Uh, carrots, while not as toxic as members of the nightshade family, you really shouldn't be eating the greens of carrots. Uh, it's not good for people. It's uh, It's got its own problems. So it, it, the answer is it depends. And it's more along the lines of looking at each individual thing that you're growing and saying from this plant, from this particular species, what are the edible components of it? And again, while eating the greens of a potato, a white potato, a blue potato, a pearl, any, any of the potato potatoes, true potatoes, uh, is, is considered toxic and highly advised that you don't do it, um, the leaves of yams and sweet potatoes are highly edible and used a lot in cooking, especially in oriental cooking. So it, you got to kind of look up each individual plant and make that determination individually. Uh, but never eat anything if you don't know for sure. I mean, that's that's the big thing to look at. And generally speaking, the sources where you acquire seeds or tubers will tell you what's edible and what's not. Another example of something that would be a green that can be used as a seasoning and, and quite edible uh, would be the tops of garlic plants. You can chop those up and use them kind of like garlic scallions or something like that. Uh, and then the garlic bulb itself can be used when you take out the individual um, cloves of garlic and use them chopped or whole or however you want to use them. So it's, it's, it's a more of a matter of it depends. I hope that answers your question. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. My name is John. Uh, I live in Kentucky, a first-time caller. Um, I have a permaculture question for, guard, uh, for you. It's regarding putting in swales in an established uh, forest. I'm looking at bringing in an excavator here in the next few weeks to put in a couple thousand feet of swales uh, on my 50-acre farm uh, here in central Kentucky. Um, the farm is... Uh, uh, kind of an open property on the ridges uh, and in the valley bottoms, but is pretty steep uh, and rocky and generally poor soil on the hills, which are usually about in the 10 to 15 degree pitch range. And the forest is primarily kind of scrubby, smaller first generation trees and older dying black locusts. And I'm looking at putting uh, putting a set of swales maybe about 25% down the hillside uh, between the valley and the and the ridge. And what I'm wanting to do is get your opinion on uh, whether that's a good thing to do over a large portion of the property. And I guess what I'm hoping to do is kind of bolster the forest and you know, do the things that swales usually do. Um, in addition, I've, some of the more mature trees on the property are ash that will be dying uh, because of the uh, emerald ash borer that's kind of coming in from the north. And I'm wanting to get your thoughts on, uh, as those trees die and come down, uh, what are your thoughts about, uh, you know, planting oaks or some other variety to kind of get uh, get to a mature forest quicker, or should I just let the forest's uh, success back with first and second generation trees like locusts and then grow back over time? Anyway, I appreciate you and thank you for your time. Take care. Bye.
This is one where I have to give you advice rather than an answer because I don't really understand your property. I would have to actually visit this property, and I would probably still want to bring in somebody with a little bit more experience in forest system conversions than me. But there's a couple things at play here that give me some pause and some concern, and I'd like you to think about maybe you get some level of a local uh, permaculture consultation uh, of someone that does this for a living before you just go digging up swales. Number one, generally we install swale-based systems to establish forests, okay? Not to uh, keep one that's already, if you already got one growing, right? The fact that you have locust, uh, old locust beginning to die, means that you've got a lot of the work done by nature, okay? So the locusts have been nitrifying that soil for a very long time. If they're beginning to die off, that basically means that they've done their job, and they're basically now handing the forest off to the next succession. So these first-generation trees are actually really more like multi-generational trees because the, the locusts were in there for a series of generations, Going in there and swaling, that's going to necessitate probably pulling out a lot of trees that you may or may not want to do. If you're going to do this or not, it's going to depend on a lot of things. Do you just want a forest? If you just want a forest, I would probably leave this system alone. This system is well on its way to natural establishment. And what's going to come if ashes... First of all, you don't know the ashes are going to get killed by this disease. Um, in a very healthy, robust, multi-species system, uh, they probably won't. In a system with too many of them, some of them will and a few will survive and be resistant and other species will take back over. So if you just want a forest to keep the hill stable and prevent erosion and you have an established forest, I would probably leave it alone. If you want to put in certain species, specifically for food production, I might want to come maybe even a little further down grade into the edge of that existing forest system, let that alone and be my zone four, zone five, go in there and do some management, selective removal, timber harvesting in a zone four, leave zone five alone. And at that edge system where you begin the transition to more open space, maybe I would swale in at that point and extend the forest with a food forest. That's, that's a gut instinct though. You start talking about putting kilometers of swale in, Make sure that you're getting someone professional in with professional surveying equipment that knows what the hell they're doing. If you have a forest, odds are you don't need swales. Again, swales are put in in the establishment phase of a food forest to establish the forest, right? So generally we go into a place that's been eroded, washed out, scrubby, scrubby bush and stuff. We'll go in there and we'll swale that. The other thing we do with swales is we establish ponds and dams with them because the swale can fill, fill the pond. When the pond overflows back, fills the swale. So if you're not planning on putting ponds in, that also maybe isn't that necessary. So I don't want to discourage you from doing it. I want you to do it if you do so for the right reasons and at the right place in the landscape. So I would start looking based on where you are for someone with professional permaculture design experience and not an urban permaculturist because there are really disciplines within disciplines of permaculture. Someone with experience with large-scale systems, multi-acre systems, large-scale swales, um, and I would look to get somebody's input on that uh, before you do it. But if, you, if you've got established forest, I'd probably leave it alone. If you want to put in a productive forest system, I would probably pick 
the edge of where that system begins its transformation and leave the higher system alone because it's already got its own system under control, so to speak. So there you go. I would look for that place where you begin to transcend from canopy to subcanopy to herbaceous and shrub. And that would be about the highest place up I would probably work with if I had enough land and if I didn't want to go in and take a piece of it and transform it. And it doesn't sound like what you're trying to do here is transform the whole system into a productive food forest. It sounds like what you're trying to do is just encourage what's already going on. The best way to do that is probably, a and this is the big key, the locust dying of old age. That means that system is highly established. Those locusts have done their job. They're a very long-living pioneer species, and they're a very multi-generational pioneer species. When they begin to give up the ghost, that system has been largely taken back toward where it wants to go already. Um, let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Ios from the forums. I had a quick question for you. You mentioned something the other day about building or owning rather 100 acres and starting some kind of community which got me thinking what are your particular plans for the survival podcast in this audience going forward obviously you want to continue to grow the business but then there'll come the point of critical mass and i was just wondering where you were and how far out you were thinking about what you would ultimately like to do thanks for everything you do you've really changed my life bye Well, that's an interesting question, and it, it really is a great question because it lets me occasionally, when people ask things like that, really talk about what the vision for uh, what we're doing in the community is. And let me answer questions like, if you believe that we're going to have this financial abyss come, why put so much effort and work into something like the Survival Podcast when you know if the economy collapses, the whole thing could fall apart? Because the reality is I don't think it will. Um I don't see, I talk about financial collapse all the time and I try so hard to explain it and I think people don't understand what I'm trying to explain about a shift versus an end. So let's start out with the community concept. I have this idea and that's all it is in my head that it would be really cool get a hundred or two hundred acres and bring forty or fifty or a hundred depending on how much land you had people in with a common vision and ideal toward liberty and freedom and sustainability, and create a resilient community based on that, where everybody has their own little piece, and then there's a common area on top of it. And basically, you buy your way in like an owner in the community. So it's like it's like an HOA without all the HOA crap. Like you have this common ownership, and the, the cost of selling the property initially funds the management of that property, which turns a profit through education and production, and that's returned as a dividend to the shareholders by what piece of property they own, how much of the whole they own, with a, a limit so nobody can own the whole damn thing or half of it and have too much say. And people get to vote on matters like how much is paid out and how much stays in to keep the system running. And you hire what amounts to basically a permaculture farm manager, and nobody that lives there has to do shit, but yet the system runs and functions. And that's, But that's just like, that's just like an idea. How would you do it? That's how I would do it. It seems kind of cool. Maybe one day I'll get the opportunity. That really has nothing that either does or does not take TSP community and all of the things associated with it, like 13 skills, like the disaster response team, citizens assisting citizens, these things, like walking to freedom. None of those things are real, have anything to do with that. right? That's just like an idea. I have a lot of ideas, and that's an idea. Then I have missions. 
right? So I'm not on a mission for that community. I don't have enough horsepower funding with it to go to anything beyond the idea phase. The vision for the show itself is for it to never really transform much, transform from much from what it is. Um, it takes a lot of work to do the show the way that it is. I would like to build it to a point where maybe I do start building a staff, at least a part-time staff. I have enough space here uh, to put people up with their own little offices now and things like that. I really don't like employees, but at some point it just may be necessary to have one or two people that are kind of on a staff uh, to help make the show a little bit more professional and help me give greater attention to the incredible diverse array of stories and maybe make the show a little bit longer on certain days and handle more guests so that instead of doing, you know, two guest interviews a week, maybe I'm doing four, but those four interviews actually account for only two somewhat longer shows. Because I have, I mean, and I understand that when people go, oh, people fear change, right? Like, I, I, you have to understand how much desire there is for people to tell you about what they know and how much uh, how many how much legs we have underneath the show now and and how much success we have and how we have to kind of grow to accommodate the success and what i mean by that is right now if you want to be a guest on this show and i think you're fabulous and i put you into the existing scheduling we're booking you in june it's march Okay, so some of the bigger guests, you know, we, we will we'll force in, we'll work in. Some people get offended. They think like we're putting them off, and it's like we're not putting you off. So there's some growth that may have to happen, but I don't want the show to become like a Hollywood production. I don't want to be on AM radio other than, you know what, if some station would come to me and say, you know what, we have a producer, that when you say shit or something like that, they'll take care of taking that out, and we'll just syndicate your show. I would probably make that kind of a deal. I, I probably would, but I don't want... To be, uh, you know, a, a radio jock. I, it's never why I started this. It wasn't so I could get a job. I, the last thing I want is a job. Uh, I don't want to be constrained by the FCC. And as you get to a point where, you know, how does this work when the economy collapses? Um, I want to be the guiding light that helps people through it. I want to be able to say, you know, by this point, maybe we have 2,000, 3,000 episodes. Here it all is. It's all free. Go get it, guys. And we're going to keep going, and we're going to talk about what's going on, and we're going to help you through it. I, I want to be the voice that says, it's not over. It's time to rebuild. Here's how we do it. I want to be the voice that says, no, you don't need a government handout. Here's how to create success in your own life. Let's put this economy back together. Let's use the technology. Let's use the tools. Let's use the modern knowledge combined with the ancient skill sets And let's go forward now. Let's not go backward. That's that's what I want TSP to be during the shift. It's partly why I have a business model where I depend on you, the listener, for financial support uh, in return for value. Okay, And I believe that as economies fall, the more value you can get, the more valuable something is. So at a time when everything's really expensive, any discount matters more. That's why I built a discount component into it. But it's also the case that I believe even during a collapse, there'll be pockets of people that do well and pockets of people that don't do so well and pockets of people that really do bad, just like any recession or depression. And it might be worse than ever before, but there'll still be that dynamic at play. And by taking something like the Members Brigade and making it as affordable as I can and spreading it out as much as I can and having the income be as diverse as I can, If a couple sponsors crap the bed and you are dependent on them, you can destroy your whole business. But I have built resiliency 
through having as many people as possible contributing to the success of the show. And, and that's part of why I built it that way. It wasn't just a marketing idea or a business concept. It was as I learned more and more about permaculture and sustainability, taking those concepts and applying it to everything that I do. So my vision for the show is for maybe it to get a bit longer, a bit more professional, but basically stay an audio program that I run from my home where I talk to you every day during the week and help you build a more fulfilling, more sustainable, more resilient, more self-sufficient life. And even when it comes crashing down, that unless it comes crashing down to the level where there is no internet and things like that, that I'm still here, I'm still working, I'm still helping you get by. And that even if it collapses completely into the abyss, that I've built my life up that the second they be in the rebuilding, I'm right back. Here I am. I was gone for a while. Now I'm back. And that I've put out so much information, so much information by that point, that even if a bomb lands on the roof of my home and I never come back, that the mission and the vision of the show and the information and the education and the no-bullshit approach is on thousands and, dare I say, millions of devices all over the nation, all over the world, and people will be able to continue to learn from that information long after I'm gone. That's my vision for the show. It's not so much about my success. It's about bringing together the best people I can find to help you learn how to take care of yourself and put that information into a portable technology, a simple MP3 file that to me is the most powerful thing ever created. Because if you want to send my show to somebody, you can download it and you can email it to them. You can put it on a USB stick and you can mail it to them. You can put it on a CD-ROM and you can hand it to them. And I don't care if you do it. I've had a distribution policy since day one that is this. If you're not selling my content and lying to people and say they have to pay for it, and if you're not altering it, you want to edit my content, don't do it. Okay, Keep it in its original form. It's only fair to my sponsors and it's only fair to me. Distribute your ass off. I don't care who you send it to, how many copies you make. I don't care how you do it. Go crazy with it. And I've done that to make it where everybody's trying to hold on to their content today. I've tried to make it as freely available as possible. You know, Take it. Go. Run with it. Give it to people. If it wakes one person up, great. That's my vision for the show. To be a voice of sanity and reason today when it's needed. And hopefully... As long as there's any infrastructure available to continue to put this information out, to be a voice of sanity and reason when we're really going to need it, is the system that is unsustainable begins to decouple. I want the show and the community, and the community so much more important than the show. The community and the sub-communities, the disaster response team, the 13 skills team, the walking to freedom team, I want these teams to be in place all over the country. So when you're told by your masters that everything has failed and we are the only solution and yield to what we want, that people say, no, thank you. Not even screw off, just don't need you. We got it under control right here in Sheboyganville. We're rebuilding it ourselves. You clowns, get the hell out of here. Because if it's bad enough, they will leave Because they'll go to the places that can't put their shit back together because their resources will be so strained they'll have no choice. 
I want, if this country breaks up into a group of republic states, to still reach all of them. And to keep some common bond of what was America left among us. And I hope it doesn't go that far, but I think it could. But one way or another, the vision for the show is to continue to educate while entertaining, to never lie to you, to never bullshit you, and to always do my best to make sure you're prepared to deal with whatever comes your way. That's what TSP is really all about. Thanks for that question. Let's take another one. Hello, Jack. This is Don from Pennsylvania. I guess I have a question for Steve Harris of your expert panel. Steve, I have a question about those portable car battery jumpers that you would carry, uh, you know, in your trunk. You know, they sound like a good idea. Uh, just wondering, are any of them any good, or are they just all junk? Uh, so, if you could tell me uh, what your opinion of those are, and if you could actually recommend one or two, uh, that would be great. Thanks a lot. Bye. Um, this is going to be one I'm not going to hand off to Stephen Harris, and the reason is I know his answer, and I completely disagree with it. And I'll tell you why his, he has his answer, and that'll explain why I disagree with it. His answer would be they're junk, don't get one, they're crap, they're useless, never have one, you'll think you have a lightsaber, blah, blah, blah. And I love Stephen, but sometimes he's just, blah, 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 lightsaber, blah, 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 lightsaber. Steve, shut up, okay? It, again, he's a good friend, and I mean that as, as a good friend tells a good friend to shut up once in a while, but, but his rationale is, is you get this thing and then you think you have the security that you're going to rely on and it'll fail you when you need it most. And if you behave stupidly with one, like you charge it up, you throw it in your trunk and you leave it there for two years and then your car dies and you think you're going to jump your car with it, you might very well find that the batteries run down and dead and it might not even really want to take much of a charge for you anymore after that. But the reality is I have a Power Dome EX in all of my vehicles and we take them out about once every couple months and you know, if I'll do things to use the battery a little bit to get a little use on it. And they test it out like if I'm working on something, I'll take one of them and turn the radio on and listen to the radio on it for a while. Uh, or maybe uh, charge up my laptop. You know, if I'm, I'll just take my laptop and when it's almost got a dead battery and plug my adapter in there and charge it off the inverter for, you know, 20, 30 minutes, get the laptop charged up, and then I'll charge up the, the, the power dome again. And I've been in situations where there's been a dead battery either in my vehicle or somebody else's. You pull it out, boom, it starts up. Uh, I even had dead batteries in my uh, diesel truck, which uses two great big giant batteries. Uh, they were the batteries that came with it. The truck had over a hundred thousand miles or close to a hundred thousand miles on it, and uh, you know it was just time for those batteries to be replaced. And I didn't feel like doing it, so eventually I got to the point where they kind of like died on me. And I, I hooked up the EX and I waited about five minutes, and boom, there goes the big diesel. So um, they do work. They have limitations. You're not going to be able to run your house with backup power on one, um, but you can pull it out and charge up a laptop, charge up a cell phone, do these other things with it. It's very uh, practical, uh, and it has its place. And I think the Power Dome EX, uh, from all the ones I've played around with, is about the best, and I would recommend one to my great-grandmother if she was still alive. And I completely disagree with Stephen Harris because his entire objection is predicated on you being too dumb to know how to use it properly and know its own limitations. So if you understand that you're buying a device with a battery in it that has about the reserve capacity of maybe two good laptop batteries, 
Uh, if you understand that you can maybe run a fan with it for 20 or 30 minutes while you work on a car, uh, it's going to need to be recharged. It's really mostly a jump pack, and these other features are kind of nice. But, hey, you know, wherever you are uh, and you have it and you can pull it out and you can listen to the radio for a bit and plug your car charger into it and dump some power back into it when you drive home, uh, you can take it fishing, you can, you know, use it, you can use the light on it uh, from time to time uh, while you're out fishing, listening to the radio uh, without wearing down your car battery. I mean, if, you, if you're driving down the if you, you know, park somewhere in a grocery store parking lot, Uh, you won't be dependent on somebody else to give you a jump. Uh, and if you have it and it doesn't work for a jump, you're still back to where you started anyway. And most of the time it will work. When you add all of that up for, you know, 100, 110 bucks, these things cost, they're a great deal. Now, is building a battery backup system, uh, in your vehicle and having a great big pair of jumper cables that can reach from your truck box in the back and jump to start yourself and all that power a better solution? Yeah, that's why I'm building one. That's why I told Stephen to come up with a system in the first place. But to write off an affordable, effective technology just because some people are stupid and think that it's going to power their home is one of the places where Steve gets too eccentric, in my opinion. Steve, you'll probably be listening to this today at some point, and I'm sorry, man, we just disagree on this one. But yeah, Steve's Steve's uh, uh, sentiment would be don't buy it. My sentiment is, Steve, you're wrong. I'm sorry. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. Alan from Tennessee here. I had the question of, do you have a reference book, website, or some form of reference material that you use to assist you in identifying weeds and other plants that are on your on your property and what their presence means in relationship to your soil health? Um, you, you reference it often. Um, by seeing particular weeds, you know that the soil is maybe too acidic or maybe it's low in calcium or, or some other uh, trait similar to a soil test, just using your vision of what's growing there. Um, but I just don't have the experience in the background that you have of looking at that, and I was wondering if you had any websites or reference materials that uh, you could point me to to help me learn to do that better. Sure, appreciate your show. Appreciate all you do. Thanks. Bye. Well, don't assign too much botanical knowledge to to my uh, repertoire and when it comes to identifying weeds. I can identify a lot of weeds uh, that grow in my area because when I see something, I'll generally try to figure out what it is. So let me tell you first how I do that. I do not know of a one-stop shop where I can go and put in the defining characteristics of a weed and find out what it is and get a whole list of things that it does and does not do. Um, but I do know that if I put in common weeds of Tarrant County, Texas, common weeds of Texas, common weeds of the American South Central States, things like that, and start looking at common weeds, 90% of the time if there's a weed that there's a lot of it around, I'll, sooner or later I'll see a picture and go, that's it, now I know what it is. And I'll find its name, both its common name and its... its um, It's, it's Latin name, and I can start researching it. And as soon as I know what it is, I can find out things like, well, what, what minerals is it high in? And as soon as I know what minerals it's high in, I know what minerals it's mining. And that immediately tells me, and see, this is not anything that makes me super smart, right? This is just an understanding of how nature works. If you have a, a deficiency in selenium 
in the upper levels of your topsoil. It's just not enough there to support good quality plant life. Nature will send a weed that can mine selenium. So people see a weed that's high in selenium and says, ooh, that means there's lots of selenium here. Usually what it means is there's not enough selenium. So nature has sent a weed that can get to selenium that the other plants can't get to to make it bioavailable. So that's kind of step one. If you see a weed, identify it and figure out, well, what does it do? What are its characteristics? But the two biggest things that we need to look at with soil problems are either loose soil or compacted soil. In almost every situation, whether soil's wet or dry, it doesn't really matter. You've either got hard pan-packed soil or you've got really, really loose soil that erodes easily. Okay? And only an established system is going to have deep, tillable, structured soil that's what we all want. And we can tell what kind of soil we really have because there's places where the soil looks loose and the soil looks compacted. But what's predominant in the area? What's the problem? Look at the weed. Go to I don't care what it is. Go and dig up, you know, get a, a, a gardening tool or something and get the whole root system of a weed out. If most of the weeds on a property have shallow hair-like roots, soil's loose and needs to be held together. If most of the predominant weeds have deep, long, driving tap roots, almost shaped like a carrot, like a dandelion root, then you have soil that is overly compacted. If you have a broad mix of weeds, both deep and shallow roots and mid-story roots and a diverse array of weeds, you don't have weeds. You have a pasture. You don't have a problem Nature has taken and created the solution. There's been enough time for that to happen. The reason this becomes important, as we're seeding into a property, and we look at something, we have, you know, the weeds that are making it have deep tap roots, then we want to initially come in with cover crops and pasture-style crops that can help with that process, like oilseed radish and other brassias like mustards, that'll drive that taproot in, turnip-style things, radish-style things. And they'll get in there, and even if they hit hard-pan rock at some point, at least they'll drive down to that rock. And then when we let that sit in the ground, that opening that they've made as they decompose stays there, the soil loosens, and now plants that are more like clovers and grasses can have a better opportunity to get into that soil. So when I analyze a weed, it's great if I can determine what it is and what it's doing. And if I'm going to help the process, it's good to know that if I have weeds that, that are good at mining selenium or boron or things like that, that I want to look for cover crops that can kind of do the same thing. But if I match the solution and the problem, nature kind of takes it from there. If I have really loose soil, I want to get anything with a root, root net in there as fast as possible. I want something that's going to hold it in, and I want to be careful that I don't do something that's going to hold it in and die real fast. I don't really want to use buckwheat if the soil is really, really loose, because it'll fix the problem and then immediately exasperate it. It will choke out everything, and when it dies, unless I cut it down and reseed it right away with something else to go, like buckwheat again, and I might do buckwheat four or five or six times in a single long summer, 
And then, but I got to see it with something for the, the, the fall that's going to start taking it forward. And it all depends. Am I farming it? Am I row cropping it? I choking out all the weeds in a row crop and then putting down a layer of mulch and bringing in my annuals or my perennials, fine. If I'm doing pasture establishment, I have to think a little bit more broadly. If I use something that's really good at choking out all weeds that's going to die off, if I don't replace it after it's done with its cycle, I end up with bare soil. And then whatever is necessary is going to colonize it. You know, whatever, whatever nature sends, which could lead to a worse problem. So that's kind of my process for thinking about that. And it's not, and the problem is when I say things like this, I always worry like people are going to get like so locked up now. Analysis paralysis. In the end, if you get high quality cover crops and keep throwing shit down whenever you're not growing something else, it'll take care of itself. But just understand, if you take a very aggressive short-term cover crop like buckwheat, it can literally choke out everything. And then when it goes away, if you don't bring something in, nature will. Nature might bring in good stuff. It might bring in plantain and chicory and dandelion and clovers, and it might not. But you can help it by bringing the things right behind the choke-out succession that you want. And think about your times and your seasons. Um, you know, you could, if you have a really harsh winter, plant things like buckwheat and kyasote and things like that. And when you get into that winter, go ahead and instead of tilling it, chop it to the ground and leave it as a big layer of mulch and have the ground in really great shape to seed early spring with things that will come forward. Just think about what you're doing and understand again, you don't even have to know what the weed is. It will tell you your soil structure by what the predominant weeds have as their root structure. Hairy, shallow roots, it's loose. Deep tap roots, it's compacted. It's amazing, but nature sends weeds that are the solution to whatever the land's problem is if we'll give it an opportunity. The only time it doesn't work is when land's been so abused that erosion is such that nothing can seem to establish itself. And that's where we need to go in with putting texture in the land, whether from swaling or mounding or just basically establishing bolt beachheads of, of plant life uh, or even land imprinting so that those eroded areas can begin the build-up process. Uh, but anything other than that, sooner or later, if you let it go, nature will turn it into a forest of some sort. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, good afternoon. This is Randy in Houston, and I uh, was listening to your episode with Paul Wheaton on Paddock Shift, and I uh, had actually wanted to call in and mention this uh, after I heard you on another, uh, on a call-in show, um, I think advising uh, or uh, saying that you might recommend ducks over chickens in a, in a suburban setting, because uh, ducks are not as hard on the ground as chickens, and um, I love my ducks. Uh, I've got ducks and chickens. Uh, I love the duck eggs, and nothing is more comical than watching my ducks have fun in their little pond and and with each other and and with the other animals we've got. But I will tell you this, especially for people in a in a suburban setting, I don't think that I would recommend ducks for anyone living in a house with neighbors that are close by, uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, number one, uh, ducks can be very loud. Uh, If they're hungry, if they're frightened, if anything, um, you and your neighbors and people uh, 
probably a hundred yards away will hear your ducks. <laughs> uh, they're very, uh, they're very comical and I love their quacking, but, uh, they're very vocal. Uh, secondly, uh, <clears throat> uh, my ducks, uh, have given me nothing but headaches with, uh, what the, what is called drilling. Uh, if you're, if you've got ducks and your ground gets anything close to being wet, uh, those ducks will tear your ground up, uh, digging holes with their bills. Um, I've got holes around, uh, their pin area and their little pond and stuff. And even in other areas in the yard where after it rains, I've got holes that are a, a good six inches deep. Uh, so while they may not scratch and completely tear up the surface of a patch of ground, uh, these ducks will put some serious holes in your yard or in their pen area or anywhere where the ground is wet and they can get their bills in and make holes. Um, and, uh, you know, and then some other things, too. They're, uh, uh, if you've got water, it's constantly got to be changed. Uh, at least every couple of days because if they get in that water, if you've got a little pool or uh, set up for them in your backyard, uh, it will be covered and it will be full of the bottom with duck poop. It's, it's miraculous how that happens. But you're right, it is, uh, it's great water for your plants and stuff like that. But the biggest thing about ducks, uh, in my mind, uh, when it comes to the ground, is they may not scratch like chickens do, but they can make some serious holes in the ground with their bills. Uh, they all do it. I've had rowans, I've had muscovies, um, pecans, and runner ducks, and every darn one of them makes holes all over the place. Um, so not to say that to turn people against ducks. You just got to be careful of it and uh, be mindful of the fact that uh, they will make holes. That's what they do when they're digging for uh those tasty treasures under the ground. So, anyway, just wanted to drop my two cents there, bud, and uh, love the show. Thank you so much for everything you do, and uh, God bless you. I played this call today uh, for a variety of reasons. One, because it's some good information, and two, because it actually mischaracterizes what I said, like almost 180 degrees. Uh, when I discussed using ducks and them being softer on the landscape, I never said the word suburban even one time. Um, but apparently this guy got the opinion that I did, and therefore others may have gotten the opinion that I did, and may be of the opinion that I'm saying ducks are better than chickens in a suburban lot. I would say that... In some instances, you can really make ducks work in a suburban environment, specifically breeds like Khaki Campbell, a small number of them for eggs, uh, can be made to work pretty well even in a suburban environment. You do have the noise factor, but uh, unless you have a large flock, most people aren't annoyed by a couple of duck quacks. It's not really that big of a problem. Larger the flock, the more quacking that happens. So that is a concern. But I have three acres in a, in a fairly rural environment where people have cows and chickens that you hear and roosters crowing all day long. So it's not a concern. So the whole suburban thing was just never my point. But there is a couple things that we need to look at here. Number one, uh, the making the holes in the ground. And this is the biggest reason that I played this. Ducks don't make holes in the ground to make holes in the ground. What? 
What are you, what are you saying, Jack? Um, I've seen flocks of ducks on properties where there, there are hundreds of ducks and there's hardly any holes in the ground at all. So they don't do it just to do it. Um, they do it for a reason. They do it because there's something in there they want, some sort of a grub or slug or snail or pest. So if you have a place where ducks are making holes in the ground, you very much want holes in the ground where that area is. They're, they're, they're not doing it just because, like, oh, gee, I'm going to make a hole in the ground. There's got to be an incentive for ducks to make holes in the ground. I've uh, lived in properties with, you know, many ducks on them. And I've, where I've never seen a duck make a hole in the ground. And I've seen ducks dig all kinds of holes in the ground. They're trying to get at something down there. And if you have a place where they're doing that, it actually creates a really great opportunity. Um, if you go to a place where they've kind of done this for a while and it's kind of dried up and they've kind of ceased and desist for a while and gone off to do something else and throw a little bit of compost down, you get a great infiltration of compost into the ground there. And then if you then seed that with things that you find very beneficial – um, like clovers and things that you would want to establish as pasture and, and productive lawn, it will be very, very successful and then will become food for the ducks and habitat for you know, beneficial insects. So it's, it's, it's a case of the problem being a solution. So that's, that's something else I wanted to point out. As far as the pools and kiddie pools and dumping them, I really encourage people that are using ducks on larger tracts of land and putting in tanks for them, water for them, and, and small things to put the water in some sort of an elevated position and to consider using something better than a kiddie pool, and, and it's going to last a lot longer, in stock tanks and, and giving them a way to get in and out with that because stock tanks always have a plug that can be removed, a valve that can be inserted, and a hose that can be attached. And this makes the concept of emptying out their water and using it for fertigation much simpler than, you know, turning over a kiddie pool. And if you've ever turned over even a relatively small-sized kiddie pool, you know that water weight adds up really, really quick, and it gets to be difficult, and now you're just dumping it, and now you're making a mud hole where you dumped it, and you don't really have the ability to move it. So, you know, our plan is to have several different stock tanks they, they can use. That reduces the amount of manure in any one of them over any period of time, and it makes moving the waste into a productive situation a hell of a lot easier to do. It's also important to look at sizable volumes of water to deal with what they do. A small kiddie pool might hold 30 gallons of water or less. Uh, an eight foot by two foot deep stock tank uh, has a capacity of about 750 gallons of water. Now, you're not going to usually fill one of those. Now, we'll use roof fill and overflows to direct any overflow straight into fertigation. Okay. Uh, and you might get it right to the top with when you get a big rain event, but generally you're not going to keep one of these tanks completely topped off. You're probably going to have two, three inches of freeboard to the top. So maybe you're looking at 680, 650 gallons of water, maybe a little bit more than that, but it's a significant amount more than a kiddie pool. And that means that there's more water to disperse what ducks do, which is crap and water. So you, now, when you're looking at ducks, I think that we really have to look at harnessing what they do. And it's a permaculture principle. It's also part of why I played this call, is to understand that there's in, inherent behaviors, uh, inputs and outputs of anything in a system. So ducks have an output of duck manure. That's only a problem if we don't have a system that fully utilizes the manure output of the population of ducks. 
There's a big difference between the output of manure in five ducks and 50 ducks. Five ducks in a kiddie pool will seem to put out an awful lot of manure. Five ducks spread across six or seven eight-by-two-foot tanks don't seem to really put out that much manure at all. Five ducks in a suburban backyard make an awful lot of holes during a rain event when there's a pest problem. Fifteen ducks spread out over three acres in the same situation. It doesn't seem to be that big of a deal. So I think that a duck is something that has to be intrinsically understood if you're going to do a good job of duck management. And that's the same of a chicken. That's the same as a goat. That's the same as a sheep. And any there's no such thing as like the perfect animal because any animal is going to have certain needs and requirements. My primary attraction to ducks is the same as my primary attraction to guinea hens. And that is that they require the minimal amount of oversight and supervision. They require management more than care. You can put a system of management in place that does a good job of managing ducks. It takes a significant more amount of care, in my personal opinion, and my personal experience to deal with, with chickens as kind of a counterpoint. And my last reason for ducks is I like to eat animals. I, I really do. And I, I don't really enjoy, you know, slaughtering day and, 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 and butchering day. Uh, but it's part of the process. And if I'm going to keep something that I'm going to care for and have to go through that process to consume, I would prefer it be something that's more difficult to obtain and a higher price point. Price duck versus chicken, and you'll see that the cost advantages of raising ducks for meat outweigh the advantages of chicken. I'm not talking about a total meat yield. I'm not talking about a total meat yield. I'm talking about a cost-benefit analysis. So go out and see what it would cost you to buy five ducks, uh, you know, cleaned up, ready to eat, end product, versus five chickens. And you'll see there's a tremendous difference on the premium on the protein. Uh, and I think that's primarily because ducks are a better meat. They're a higher quality meat than chicken. But that's just my opinion. Your opinion may differ. Let's take another call. Jack, this is Ben in Denver. Uh, question is, if you've never done small livestock before, what would you start with? What would you do first? Uh, just listen to the quail episode, and it's really easy to get real excited about getting into that stuff, and you start thinking about it, and it's real easy to get kind of scared off at it all, too. So um sounds like the quail might be a little less intense than chickens, and I was thinking about doing that, too, but I definitely want to get started with something this year. I'm just trying to figure out what would be best. So for a beginner, what would you recommend to start with? Thanks, man. Love what you do. Keep the show going, and uh, have a good day. Um, it, it, when I answer any question on gardening, livestock, anything, I always do it from a permaculture approach. And a permaculturist will almost always answer any question unless it's very, very specific with it depends because it does. So uh, with all the stuff I just talked about with ducks, if you have a quarter acre lot in the suburbs, I'm probably not going to say ducks. Uh, I think they're a great mid-sized property uh, livestock, but so it, it depends. Um, Some of the other things I'm going to ask if, if you want to pick out the perfect livestock for a first-time thing is what are your goals? Is your goal to have something that exists in the system and is a component of the system to improve its total output? Okay, So if you want a worker, and I think any livestock should be used as a worker in the system, but is that all you want? If you just want a worker in the system, then it's hard to beat the chicken. The chicken is pretty dumb. 
And that makes it pretty easy to use. We can move it around. It goes wherever we kind of chain it into. It scratches. It poops. And it can improve the land over and over and over again. And it controls pests and it breaks pest cycles. It's going to produce eggs. Even if you don't want eggs, you can give the eggs away. You can feed the eggs to a dog. You can give them to a food bank. You can always do something with the eggs. And if you want protein of any sort, chicken eggs are probably the highest yield for the input. Uh, with ducks being pretty close and maybe better if you have a better place for it. Do you want protein to eat? Like, do you want meat? If you want meat, I'm going to steer you toward eggs. I'm going to steer you toward quail or rabbits. Um, and I think that both of them have a very high potential use for meat. But then I would say, what's your definition of livestock? Probably the easiest livestock to keep, which would be any animal, performs a function in your system for you with minimal upkeep would be a worm bin. Worms are livestock, right? They break down waste. They break down your waste. They produce uh, an organic compound that's highly valuable in your garden. So worms would probably be easiest. Um, if not worms, then maybe the next easiest thing with the least amount of, of, of daily upkeep would be bees. If you want honey, bees. If you don't want honey, bees. They still pollinate. Right, And then they have a certain, I'm going to tell you that bees are actually a security element on your property. They don't really do anything, but there's a lot of people that are freaking scared of them. You know, if you had a couple hives on your different fence lines of your property, it, it actually would deter some people, believe it or not. I wouldn't rely on it, but at least it's there. It's a kind of an offshoot uh, of things. But I guess a list that I would make up of, of the animals to most consider would be chickens, Within their limitations, we've just discussed in depth, ducks, quail, and rabbits. Um, I think that those are probably your best starting points when you get into true you know, animal, what we think of as conventional livestock. And ask yourself, what resources do I have? What inputs will the animal require? What outputs will the animal have? Feathers, manure, eggs, meat, etc. What are my plan to use those outputs? When you find the thing that most matches your system, you're good to go. Um, and I, I'll give you another reason to keep rabbits other than meat. If you got yourself a couple rabbits, just a couple rabbits, two does, and never even got a buck, and never bred them, put them into a nice, happy rabbit hutch environment where they could go do their thing all the time and never even breed, and all you did was feed them all your waste products uh, from your garden, all the vegetation, a little bit of rabbit feed, they are going to produce a tremendous amount of rabbit pellets, and it's probably one of the best sources of gentle fertility you could ever have in a garden. And it might be the easiest thing that you could possibly do, and you could even automate their feeding to a degree, and with a very little bit of uh, some assistance when you go on vacation with somebody checking in on them, uh, you could set them up to where they don't need a lot of help or effort. So if you wanted just a fertility boost in your system and just something to do with all that excessive waste, I would look at worms or rabbits. And rabbits are probably better because they produce a waste that's abundant and you can, you don't have to compost rabbit pellets. You could, they don't even stink. Rabbit poop doesn't stink. You can pretty much scoop it up and spread it out in your garden and it's a great fertility aid. So like most things in permaculture, it depends. Hopefully that helps you make a decision for your individual situation. Hello, Jack. This is Jen in North Carolina. I have a question for you, or maybe Paul Wheaton could weigh in. I have some cow calves on my property. Um, the 
the cows that we used to have have trampled a specific area, and uh, water does not shed from there very well anymore because of the soil compaction. It is not appropriate to do a kind of a raised bed garden situation. I would just throw a bunch of organic matter on it and leave it alone, but I do want to have grass there. Uh, what is the permaculture approach to uh, resolving those issues if the goal is to return an area to grass when the soil has been compacted? Thanks, Jack. I'll keep this one brief because I've pretty much already given the answer today with my discussion on weeds. Um, when you have compacted soil, you need something that can break up the compaction. It's that simple. And there's probably nothing better uh, than to go into that environment, disturb the soil a little bit. Uh, it doesn't sound like these areas are that big. If they are pretty big, maybe you even need to do something like, uh, you know, drag something across it. A, a true permaculture approach. Uh, rather than trying to give it even a, a, a surface plowing or something like that, or even, you know, you could do some things you could do would be a four wheeler with, with an old gate and drag it across or give some soil disturbance, disturbance would be to put chickens on it. If you can put chickens on it, put chickens on it for about a week. Let them tear it up really, really good. Then go in there and seed oil seed radish and mustard. And when I say mustard, I'm not talking about the mustard that we grow as greens. I'm talking about a cover crop style of mustard. Within that, also seed something like Caius oat. When those plants get up into kind of a, a mature stand uh, and you're ready to take them down, go back in there and, and scythe it. Or you can put the chickens back in there and do this, either or, and they'll kind of break it down quite a bit for you. And then seed in the uh, native or uh, perennial grasses that you want, along with support species like uh, like clover, like chicory, and like plantain. And then let nature take its course, and it'll it'll restore the area straight away. Um, again, we can do this with a little bit of mechanical assistance. We can just overseed the shit out of it. Even if you don't have any, you don't want to disturb the soil at all. You don't have a means to do it. Uh, if you just go in there and seed enough oilseed radish and mustard, uh, and you can go ahead and start seeding in some some of your other seeds at that point, they'll just have very very limited success. You probably also want to include in that seed mixture some vetch, either some hairy vetch or purple vetch or common vetch, whatever's best for your climate. Uh, and the time that you're doing the seeding to start putting some nitrogen back in the soil. But the truth is if the cattle have done this, there's probably plenty of residual fertility, but they'll start inter the, the legume, the vetch will start to interact with that residual fertility and start to get some of the biological life going again as the soil begins to decompact. That's all it takes. And it is that simple. And your, your magic thing, your magic arrow in your quiver for this compacted soil is something like oilseed radish, or tillage radish, uh, or a high-standing mustard-style crop, anything with a deep driving taproot, and do not till it. Do not till it at the end of that cycle. Just cut it to the ground, leave those roots in the ground, let them rot in the ground, and, and success it to your next, that's, at that point, strike. Go in there, you know, what I would personally do is I would pull back everything. I would pull, I'd scythe it, right? And I would seed the crap out of it with what you want it to become. And I would take all the stuff you scythed and I would restore it in a thin layer like a natural uh, mulch. And as it begins to dry up and decompose, all of your new pasture will grow up in between it. 
and it'll protect the soil layer while the pasture's establishing. And a lot of your, if you do this right, a lot of your Caius oat, or you can use bearded barley or something like that, will begin to regrow when you cut it. It'll come back. The radish and the mustard will be done when you cut it. It just won't, it won't, maybe a little bit of it'll coppice, but most of it'll be done. And you can keep going back in there, and you can keep kind of chopping and dropping that if you want to, or you can just let it play out. Eventually, it'll grow up, it'll die off, it's an annual, and your perennials will success through. It's really a pretty easy process. It's one of the easiest questions that I've had today, um, and I think a lot of people make that type of restoration complicated, and the reality is all we have to do is emulate nature and speed up the process. Uh, and try to establish a, a multi varied uh, environment. You want dandelion, you want chicory, you want plantain, you want vetches, even though they're an annual, they're a reseeding annual. You want things like that. Um, you don't want it just to be alfalfa. right? If there's an alfalfa in there, that's great. I mean, alfalfa is a great plant. Uh, it has a lot going for it. But if you get this Molt this kind of salad bar approach, as Joel Salatin would call it. You'll have a much greater uh, amount of stability, whether you want to uh, pulse chickens through it or maybe mob graze cattle through it instead of letting them in there in one place too long to recreate the problem. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Jack Harris from London, Ohio. i got a quick question on gardening. I know you mentioned in one of your previous episodes that you should not uh, till uh, once or twice a year. Um, is there any benefit to adding things such as uh, you know, leftover uh, food, vegetation, and also uh, rabbit droppings, and then tilling that into your garden? And the uh, second part of the question, I learned the hard way there are some things that you can't plant next to each other because they'll cross-pollinate. Uh, is, do you have any recommendations on uh, uh, such things you need to separate or plant at a further distance, such as uh, yellow bell peppers and um, banana peppers. Um, Any help? Appreciated. Keep up the great work. Thanks. Instead of answering the question as, is there any benefit to tilling in rabbit droppings and kitchen scraps into your soil, I'm just going to answer the question, is there any benefit to tilling? No, 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 do not till. Plain and simple, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. Um, and the always the objection is, if I don't till, I'll have weeds. And my question to every single person that ever tells me that is, can you, can you tell me that tilling prevents weeds in your garden? And they'll say, yes, because when I'm done tilling, there's no weeds. And I'll say, no, 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 no. Prevention would mean they don't come back. Every time you till, the weeds come back stronger and stronger and stronger. And again, with tilling, a tiller only goes so deep. When it gets to the bottom of how deep it's tilling, it's compacting. So you're compacting the soil under the soil that you're tilling. You're bringing up all the weed, all the weed seeds. You're opening up the earth. You're making it a nice fertile ground for any seed that lands to germinate. And you're killing everything that's alive in your soil. And that's why you seem to get a fertility boost because you're growing on dead bodies. So there's no benefit to tilling. Now, what do you do with kitchen scraps and rabbit droppings if you do not want to compost them in atomous compost? Go out to your garden. You'll pull back the great big layer of mulch that should be on top of your garden because there should be a big thick layer of rotting straw or wood chips or some sort of carbon-based mulch Nice and deep, four inches thick maybe, 
three inches minimum, and you pull back an area, and you stick it there, and you throw the mulch back on top of it, and you let the soil take it from there. In your soil, if you'll stop killing everything in your soil, if you'll stop to take your tiller, okay, and get rid of it. Put it on Craigslist. Get rid of it. No more tiller. No more tiller. No more tiller. Get rid of the tiller. Got it? Okay. If you stop tilling, then life will come into your soil. And worms and bugs and bacteria and all kinds of little creatures in there will keep going through your soil. And they'll start doing all kinds of things. And your soil will become a pond. Okay? It's hard to understand, but that's what good, fertile, moist soil is. It's a pond. You got a foot of soil, okay, will hold two inches of water. Good soil will hold two inches of water. If you took it and squeezed it when it was most hydrated and got every drop out of it, you hold almost two inches of water in a foot of good quality soil, rich in fungal hyphae, rich in life, rich. Two inches is a shallow pond. Okay? Just say an inch a foot, you get two feet of soil. You get two inches deep the entire dimension of your garden. And if you take the rows between your gardens and mulch the shit out of them as well, four, six inches in the, in the rows between your garden, the trails between your garden, that whole area becomes like that. And all of that, even though you're not adding stuff to that soil, there's all little creatures in there and they're all happy and they're just going crazy. And you, you pull it back even in your trails and you look at the soil's got this crumb structure and it's holding water. And now there's life. And if you have life in soil, and you put a bunch of carrot peelings in contact with the soil and throw the mulch back on top of it, the worms come up and eat it, the little creatures come up and eat it, the worms crap, other creatures eat the worms crap, and the soil will till itself the way nature intended. Nothing in nature emulates a rototiller. Not even a pig. A pig sticks his snout in the soil and pulls up a piece and makes a hole, and the soil falls back down on the hole, and in time, gravity and water cause the soil to redistribute itself. Nothing in nature truly emulates a rototiller. And that's why every time we till, we get problems. Every time we till, we get more weeds. Every time we till, we compact the soil. You can't tell me that you till because of weeds when your tilling is creating more weeds. I'll tell you, I'll put it this way. Go till a strip of land, just like in the middle of a grass field. It's mostly good quality grass and pasture. Till it and do nothing with it. Just till uh, a four foot wide by ten foot long strip. Just till it and leave it there. Come back in six months, especially if you till it in spring. It will be full of weeds. The, the grass around it and the pasture around it, the well-maintained pasture, won't just crawl, it eventually will, right? But it, it'll be, it'll grow twice, it'll be twice as high as the grass if the grass is being maintained by, by animals or by machine. And there'll be this, like, all, oh, every weed you could possibly imagine. And you, you know what it would look like if you were in a, in a, in a, like a tree stand looking down at it? A scar. Or a band-aid, more accurately. You've wounded it. And the weeds are coming in and going, oh, crap, it's been wounded. And the weeds will grow, and the weeds will success, and as the structure returns, the pasture would advance back over and take it back over, and it will become what it always was. And then you till it again, and you till it again, and you till it again, 
And you till it again. And you go, man, without this tilling, I'd never be able to stop these weeds. Really think about that. Tilling causes weeds, and weeds are caused by tilling. The solution, stop tilling, eliminate the weeds that are already there, deep mulch, and just keep planting into it and keep adding organic matter. And whenever you add organic matter, pull your mulch layer back, which you can do with a hoe, drop your organic matter down, which you can do in a small amount with your hands, a little bit more with a shovel, and push your, the, 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 um, the mulch back over your space. And then people say, but Jack, I want to plant lettuce seeds. It's a little bitty lettuce seed. How's that little, little bitty lettuce seed going to come up through that thick layer of mulch? The question you should be asking is, if the little bitty lettuce seed can't get through the mulch, what does that say about a lot of weed seeds? They can't even get contact with the soil. So what you do is you pull the mulch back and expose the soil where you're going to plant your seeds, maybe even a long furrow if you're going to do a row of something. Put your seeds in contact with the soil. Sprinkle a little bit of soil on top of that furrow. Wait for your plants to come up. When they come up over the level of the mulch that's there, the two to three, four inches, whatever it is, fill the mulch around the base of the plant. It gives it all this stability and protection. And then that plant's reaching down into the soil, and the weeds can't do it. So the solution to the tilling issue is put your tiller on Craigslist and exchange your problem for money and let the problem be somebody else's problem that wants a tiller because they don't listen to Jack Spirico. Cross-pollination. Cross-pollination only matters if you want to save seeds. If you've planted two different kinds of peppers close to each other and one of your pepper plants is producing something weird and you bought the plants or something like that or you bought the seeds or something like that, it's not a cross-pollination problem. If you save the seeds that you thought were yellow bell peppers and you label them nice and dutifully yellow bell pepper and you plant them and they grow some kind of weird pepper that looks like a cross between a, a cow horn pepper and a bell pepper, um, you've created a hybrid through cross-pollination. So separation rules, the best way to learn your separation rules uh, is to go to a resource called seedsave.org. Uh, which is maintained by the International Seed Saving Institute, again, seedsave.org. If you cruise on over there, you will find a, a, a whole list of different types of plants. The easiest one for beginners, experienced, and expert level, uh, especially a lot of the expert level or stuff that are biannuals, meaning you have to take the plant to a second season to get it to seed out for you. Um, and separation distances. And you'll find that things like tomatoes and peppers, the separation distances really aren't that great. And you can do some hand pollinating to, to, to deal with some other things. Things like melons, cucumbers, and squashes have a lot more issues with cross-pollination. Uh, you can, you can do, and I really recommend the best thing to do with that is hand pollination of what you're going to save. But please understand that when you go to a store and you buy a flat of plants, Or you go to a store and you buy a package of seeds and you plant them and you know you've labeled your, or you know where you've planted them and everything's been labeled correctly and something weird comes out. It's not because cross-pollination happened that season. It's because cross-pollination happened the season before. A way to look at it would be if you have a poodle and a chihuahua and you make a chapoodle whatever the hell that is. They just invented it. So we breed a small poodle to a big chihuahua, a toy poodle to a, a full-size chihuahua. We get about the same size dog, I guess, I think. I don't really know those breeds very well. And we get a chapoodle, okay? And let's say the, the chihuahua is the male and the, and the, uh, the poodle is the female, okay? Um, the poodle is kind of like the plant. And when the chihuahua breeds the poodle, 
right? Neither the poodle or the chihuahua turn into a chapoodle, right? But the puppies that come from that result are chapoodle, all right? But the, the, the case, the mama poodle, right, that the, the babies grow in doesn't change. She's still a poodle. Well, your pepper's like the poodle, right? And your male source of pollen is like the chihuahua. And, and the pepper's still going to be a red bell pepper, a green bell pepper, a banana pepper. But the seed is like the puppy. And when we plant the puppy and the puppy grows up, it's going to be a chapoodle. All right? So I think there's a, like an over-concern for cross-pollination. Cross-pollination, again, only an issue if you intend to save seed and only an issue for the plants that you intend to save seed from. So a lot of people say, well, I want to grow a couple different kinds of winter squash, and they cross-pollinate so easily. There's no way I can do this. It's so simple. When you look at any squash or pumpkin or something like that, you have a female and a male flower. That's what makes them actually the easiest thing to prevent cross-pollination from. And you'll see the female plant will have, the female flower will have a little baby squash or cucumber or watermelon or cantaloupe or pumpkin behind it and a blossom. And you watch that blossom. And you can see that like, That blossom is going to open tomorrow morning. So one day out of your season, you get your butt up out of bed at the crack of dawn, and you go out there, and you'll see that flower just starting to open. And you go, and you find yourself a male flower or two from the same species. You know this is also a, a Styrian holus pumpkin, for instance. And you take that male flower, and you pull the, the petals off of it so that the, the pollen stamens are right there. And you go take your female flower, And you, you pry it open a little bit with your fingers. It won't hurt anything. And you just dab some of the pollen onto the female component of the flower. And you take a little bit of this really high-tech stuff called masking tape, like a paper tape, like painter's tape, the blue stuff. That'll work too. You tape the, 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 the flower shut so the little bees and flies can't get in there. And you've pollinated it so now all is well. And you take a little zip tie back on the stem, and you put a little zip tire. So You know, you want to do it so it won't fall off, but it's not so tight that the stem will get fat and it'll cut into it. You put a little zip tie on there. And now you know that that is one hand-pollinated Styrian Austrian pumpkin. And you do it with three or four during the season. And then when those, when you harvest those, you just put a big, take a Sharpie marker and write an S on them. And you know those are ones to save seeds from. And that's it. And you don't worry about all the other cross-pollination because when the butternut squash cross-pollinates the other Styrian Austrian pumpkin, it's going to be a Styrian Austrian pumpkin. It's the seed that will carry the gene from the cross-pollination activity. So there you go. That's how you don't over-worry or overthink cross-pollination. That's how you stop tilling. Stop tilling. If you learn nothing else today, stop tilling. Don't tell me about your weeds. Your weeds are caused by your tilling. If you could till the field and a year later there'd be no weeds there, I'd buy into your theory. But if I don't till and I choke out all the weeds and I put down four inches of mulch, there'll be very few weeds there in a year. And the ones that are due, you can walk in and grab and pull right out. They'll just come straight out. No problem whatsoever. And then I'll just leave them there and they'll become organic matter and they'll return whatever minerals they were mining Back to the soil. In fact, when I do get some weeds, I actually let them come right up to the point where they start to flower, and then I yank them out. That way, if they've done the maximum amount of work they can before they begin to produce seeds. 
Uh, with that, I got things wrapped up. I want to remind you guys again about some of our sister sites. Again, 13skills.com, tspmint.com, tspgear.com, and our latest endeavor, walkingtofreedom.com, uh, where we can, we're picking out the, the worst states for oppression in the union and encouraging citizens to evaluate their options and choose the most liberated state for their needs that fits and matches what they're doing. I'd love to have you guys uh, get involved with that. We're voting on the naughty list. We're doing it for 90 days. Don't come to me on day 95 and go, I don't know why so-and-so's not up. Well, you had your chance to vote. It's disapproval voting. You can vote for up to 10. Again, walkingtofreedom.com. And for those of you that haven't picked up on it yet, the initials for Walking to Freedom, you know, your, the survival podcast is TSP, WTF, Walking to Freedom, WTF. So when you've said WTF one too many times about the way your state's behaving, WTF indeed is the solution. With that, this has been Jack Spirigo with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer It's like there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess And we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Revolution